You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Welcome to the Friends of Europe Café Crossfire debate, uh, looking at the issue of rare diseases and particularly how we can improve access to care and diagnosis. It is the longest day of the year. It is also possibly the hottest. So I invite all the gentlemen present, feel free to take off your jackets and ties. This is a relaxed, informal space. As women, we have a lot more freedom, but feel free to um, make yourselves comfortable in the time we're together. Just a couple of points to remind you. At Friends of Europe, we believe in taking the debate out to the public. So please feel free to tweet and to use the hashtag uh, FOE Health, and our Twitter handle is Friends of Europe. So, we're here to talk about rare diseases. Um, there's approximately 30 million Europeans living with, or just about to be diagnosed with, between 6,000 and 8,000 rare diseases. So, a significant proportion of Europe's population are facing this challenge. Um, and as our, our panel will talk about, this is not an easy path. It's often slow, it's long to get diagnosis, and this involves endless tests, uncertainty, lack of knowing about what's going wrong, what the path for. And once people do get a diagnosis, often there is nothing available for them. So this is, I think, possibly the most obvious area where the EU could provide added value and could provide something of real value to the citizens. But... It requires change to the system. And at Friends of Europe, we've been holding a series of conversations, both about how healthcare systems could be brought up to date, but also more specifically, how disruptive innovation could come in to improve healthcare. And we, in the report that we published just a few weeks ago, we put out a number of recommendations. And one of the first ones says, you need to look at the incentives in the system. Because the incentives that exist incentivize certain types of behavior and certain stakeholders to do things. If we want change, we have to change the incentives. And that's what our panel members are going to help us explore. Because what gets incentivized gets done. What gets done gets measured and monitored. So what we're looking at here is making sure that a population that is largely underserved or poorly served gets better value from the system so that the whole system is more resilient and more effective. So that's the big frame. We have um, a diverse panel of speakers, and we also, I'm delighted to say that we have two members of the European Parliament present, who I will be coming to immediately after the first panel of speakers to provide us some input. And then I'll invite you to do some work on a hot, sunny afternoon and be part of this conversation. So let me start now by, um, as we would in the Brussels environment, going to the European Commission. Always lots of expectations here. Mr. Xavier Pratz-Monet from DG Santé, the Director General. What, what can the EU do to help make this path easier for patients? What can you do to help speed up diagnosis, increase knowledge, and make this better? Uh, hello. Hi, hi. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, this is really an area, as you said, that it would be difficult to imagine that the EU could not bring other value, huh? because difficult to see an area where there is clearly a need for critical mass that no country, but also no discipline, no hospital can address by itself. So... There has to be your other value. 
On the other hand, you see clearly also an obstacle that we, I feel very strongly uh, anytime you look at health, which is that there's a very clear limitation as to what the EU competencies are. We cannot tell countries how to organize their healthcare system, and we cannot tell countries how to do something as essential, for, including for rare diseases such as pricing. So we have to find a way where we have real other value, we demonstrate other value, but then we don't step into competencies that are not ours. And it's easier said than done, but to make a long story short, and just to start a discussion with colleagues who know actually more than me in many cases on this, let me mention uh, four areas where I think we, we, do, we can do more. Uh, one is incentives, indeed. You mentioned incentives, and we are now looking into, uh, we have a, a lot of legislation that is meant to provide incentives for better medicine, for research, and so on, and we have embarked into an analysis, a study on the effectiveness of these incentives. It will be ready by the end of the year, beginning of next year, and that should be a basis to look at whether what we have in place is effective or not. Then uh, I think it's really important that we look at one particular instrument such as HTA, Health Technology Assessment. This is being done by all countries. If there's one area where cooperation on HTA is obvious, obviously is, is rare diseases, precisely because of the need for critical mass. All countries are confronted with the same diseases with very small quantities, so certainly doing something that is relevant for rare diseases on HTA is important. And there we are working on this, as you probably know, we are now, we have launched an input assessment, there has been an open consultation, and we hope to have, before the end, so in, in October, the Commission's scrutiny board on the input assessment, and on that basis, a proposal on the table on stronger cooperation between member states on HTA that will certainly include uh, uh, diseases. Uh, I, I should also mention what we can do with, the, with, with, with digitalization to promote research, particularly on this. And there, as you may also have seen, in the midterm review of the DSM, on the 10th of May, the Commission proposed essentially better implementation of the DSM. It's a new strategy, but then very few new elements, one of them, e-health. And by the end of this year, with my colleague Roberto Viola in DG uh, uh, Connect, but also with RTD and, of course, others, we try to really work not in silos, particularly in this area. We try to propose what can be done, for example, on digital infrastructure to promote the use of technology, of data, for better research, better diagnosis. And last but not least, and I do mean last but not least, the European Reference Networks. This is, you know, to me, I mean, I, I come from the world of education, and the first thing that comes to mind when you look at DRNs is PISA, I mean, uh, or Erasmus. I mean, uh, DRNs is so clearly something to the advantage of 30 million people, bringing together talent across Europe from different disciplines, uh, patients' organizations, <clears throat> it's actually so extraordinary that what is surprising is that it took 10 years to put in place. But now they are there. Now they are there. And our task, and I do feel very strongly, I do feel the pressure, by the way, of Jan here, uh, because Jan represents the patients in this who are the ones we should be thinking of. I do feel the pressure of delivering on the RNs. But I, I, I cannot imagine a better service to rare diseases in Europe than by strengthening what the ERNs, the European Reference Networks for Rare Diseases, can do. And, by the way, also thinking about how the ERNs can be not just integrated into national healthcare systems, but how they can transform national healthcare systems as concerns the treatment of diseases, research, and the use of data. Easier said than done, because, as I said, then you come into national competence, you come into national traditions, national administrative rules, and you come into the difficult issues of privacy, of data protection, which we have to deal with, and believe me, it's not going to be easy, but I can tell you there's such an incentive to do more because it's such an obvious area where Europe can prove it can do something for citizens. Thank you.
Now let me turn to Kim Stratton, who's uh, from Shire, obviously one of the companies that's involved in developing products. For a long time, the challenge for rare diseases was there was just nothing in the pipeline. We've got regulation in place to change that, and the pipeline is starting to fill up. We've got the good news is there are now products on the way. So now we need to look at where are the other bottlenecks in access and what can we do to actually allow this progress that's been made in getting new products uh, developed actually into the hands of patients. Yeah, I agree, Tamsin. And, and thanks for the opportunity to talk on behalf of the industry. And in true industry form, I do have a slide to kind of help us uh, focus the mind. Uh, just as you said, Tamsin, if you look at uh, since 1999, we had about eight drugs that were registered for orphan, orphan drugs registered. And uh, now we've got about 130, 130 plus. So you can see that the incentives are indeed working. They're encouraging more drugs to come through. And if you have a look at phase two, phase three, there's about 450 projects actually in the pipeline. So it looks good. Remember always with, with these, these uh, development projects, they're high risk. So you need many, many projects in the pipeline to just get one or two out into the marketplace. So we're getting the marketing authorization. I think that process is really done well, I think, by the EMA. So I think we're all pretty pleased with that. The problem is, is that we've got um, about 130 products out there with a the marketing authorization. Um, Germany and France look pretty good in terms of getting them from marketing authorization into the hands of the patients. But if you go to the UK and pretty much all of the other states, only half of those marketing authorizations get funded and make it to the patients. And so this is the problem. And, and you know, if we don't fix this soon, that takes away the incentive to put more products into the, into the pipeline. So we need to fix this. We need to put some solutions on the table. The problem that we had, and, and you know, it comes down to HTA, it comes down to the nature. This is different. We need a different system. We need a different you know, proposal on the table. And we've kind of put a straw man here to kind of help us think what might that look like. Because I think it does speak to a different proposal for HDA and it does speak, I think, to the ERNs. The problem that we know is with rare diseases is that the patient populations are really, really small. We do not have a critical mass to talk about, you know, what, you know, how, we, how these products can get through HDA. Really none of them will get through a standard HDA. The other thing as well is, is that these are orphan drugs. So actually our knowledge about the disease area is really, really poor. So then we get ourselves into this kind of chicken and egg syndrome where we don't have enough data to justify the price. We can't get a price, so we can't get onto the market. And so nobody gets access and we don't get experience. What we would really like is to work with the, the European Reference Network to sort of say, can we set up some registries right from the get-go? Can we have some, some protocols as best that we know about which patients to actually put onto the products? And can we collect data from day one? So get your marketing authorization and then get immediate access, start collecting data. We know that the payers get nervous. So we know that, you know, can we actually agree on a set number of patients, uh, a set number of, of monies to be spent in each of the member states so that from a payer perspective, this is also sustainable and it's predictable. Nobody likes to have unpredictable budgets. We know that as well as anybody. 
And then I think once we get the provisional price with a provisional number of patients, collect the data for two to three years, and then come back, sit around the table. And that brings me to the second point, and that is we have to work out, for this to be sustainable for our patients with rare diseases, we all, all stakeholders have to win. And we all have to sit around the table. It has to be transparent for everybody. We need for the payers to have something that's predictable, that they know how much they're going to spend. We need for the policymakers to be making these drugs available for patients with rare diseases because actually that's what societies in Europe tell us that they, that they really want. We know that the patients are so desperate. Remember, 95% uh, of patients with rare diseases don't have access to any, any treatment uh, for, for their disease. The physicians are the patient champions, and our physicians spend endless amounts of time going through the bureaucracy trying to get access for their patients. Let's give them something that's more positive uh, use of their energy. And for, and for the industry, let's actually have something that's sustainable. Not only are we actually bringing products to the market, we're actually getting to them into the hands of the patients, and we're given a chance to actually really grow real-world evidence for these uh, products. Okay. Thank you, Kim. Let me now turn to Jan Lecam. You are the, the Chief Executive Officer of Eurodis, which is the patient's platform for, for rare diseases. Um, obviously, you represent families who have the bewildering process of trying to navigate health systems to find the right expert who can help them and, and identify the disease they're dealing with. We've heard that there's some new drugs coming through the pipeline. There are still some um, bottlenecks that have to be dealt with. And the commissioner's clearly said that rare diseases is the win-win. It's clear that this is where Europe works. Um, but he also said, be careful, national competence, the EU has a fairly limited mandate. From your perspective, where do you see the EU's role in helping to speed up diagnosis and help patients in their difficulties finding solutions in healthcare systems? I see that in two, three ways. The first risk is that uh, EU will go only halfway, as they often do protection, gain, or euro, except that rare disease is easier to fix. So we need to look at how to complete processes in terms of the development of medicines and access, in terms of European reference network and data, in terms of improvement of diagnostic and care, which means healthcare pathways, in terms of integrated medical and social care. It's well documented the difficult maze to access a diagnose or uh, the treatments. And I think we've put in place a strategy, with, particularly with the European Friends Network, uh, to address part of these challenges. Now, new surveys data shows that 25% of patients in, during the 12 months of 2016 had no access to existing treatments to them. That's exactly the same figures in another type of surveys that we did a few years ago on several occasions. On the top of it, you have another 25% who have difficult access, meaning that they might have access in one hospital, not in another, not in another and etc. So that's pretty poor, particularly poor in an environment where decisions are usually centralized at the national level. A second figure, 75% of the patients with rare diseases have a, a, a high or significant impact on their daily life, tasks they cannot perform, walking, typing on a computer, looking, so all the impairment of functions. And 
On the average, it takes for 60% of their carers, so family, partners, parents, whoever, 60% of them, more than two hours per day to take care. That's the reality that we need to address, and we need to see these figures to go down. So what can we do for that? Yes, EU can do more by, I would say, looking at the soft incentives. There is the incentives like 10 years market exclusivity. But that incentive is the transposition of an incentive developed in the U.S. to Europe. Europe, U.S. after that, after market authorization, is a liberal environment. You're negotiating with 300 insurance companies. In Europe, supposedly, we have 28 payers. It's a bit more complex than that, but 28 countries. And this is a directed easy discussion. We need to turn this disadvantage into an advantage. The fact that it's public-led enables us to establish a dialogue, a structured dialogue between the payers, at least the volunteer member states, and the industry to do exactly what Kim was saying, but there is also other options to look at. But what is obvious is that all that is linked, as it was in one of the boxes here, to the collection of data. And where the collection of data will happen? in the European Funds Network. This is where the patients and the doctors are. So we're talking about a system where in the clinical trials and development of these huge opportunities of translational research are performed in these centers, and after market authorization, all the data collection is there too. Same type of competence. We need to think in terms of competence, in terms of tools, in terms of common approaches, and we need to have a good data strategy that doesn't focus only on the administrative management or on, on, on registries. It's much broader than that. And it has to be participative with the industry, with the clinicians, with the researchers and the patients. And if I may add a conclusion, I think we like to remind, as Xavier, thank you for saying that, that if there is European Funds Network today, it's because the patients asked for it since 2004, 2006. And then it was obviously developed by the policymakers into the directive on cross-border health care. But if it is a, the, the potential success, which is only potential for the moment of where we are, of 24 networks per therapeutic areas, it's because we shaped it. Sorry to say, we shaped it with the clinicians. It was said to us even two years ago, that it was impossible because Europe has to be competitive. So the stupidity was to have two networks for cystic fibrosis, for instance. So what we did was to shape that in order not to be competitive but collaborative. And everything that we've done good in that area has been when it is participative with the stakeholders. And I think we need to keep that in mind, to oppose collaboration to competition, participation to bureaucratic approach. Soft incentive and... Soft incentive is what I said about the drugs and European negotiation. Soft incentive is a structured approach on the data. That's a soft and powerful incentive. Pathway for the diagnostic and healthcare. It's much broader than European Funds Network. It's also neonatal screening. It's going to be the training and awareness of the healthcare professionals and, and much more. And we know that. That's down the road. So the structured collaboration at the European level between volunteer member states, volunteer actors, but supported by the Commission for me, is one of the key pathways for the future. Thank you, Jan. Let me now turn to Natalie Moll, who's the Director General of FPIA, the, the trade body for the uh, research-based pharmaceutical industries. Jan has set out for us this, the importance in the rare disease area specifically of being collaborative, not competitive, and participatory. So, and obviously, you, your company is operating in a competitive environment. So how can the EU provide support for companies to make the kind of strategic investments in a competitive area that would still 
deliver the results we need for rare diseases. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I'll do a disclaimer, which is not a slide. I'm, I, I will have to leave 10 minutes early, and I really apologize, but I have a flight to the US that I can't miss. I'm sorry to say that. But um, going back to the much more important um, issues at stake, I think how can we, we? We have to because it's not business as usual, right? And, and last night's, we can call it a scare, but, but if the police hadn't been so good, it wouldn't have been a scare. And today I would be sending the email I sent out March of last year, or uh, two years ago, to my members. So um, I think we are not living in a business situation. And why, why am I saying that? It's because the budgets, it's not even only the healthcare budgets that are strained, it's the member state budgets. There are no more, I don't know if you've noticed, there are no more decorations with flowers in the spring in Brussels. There used to be baskets hanging everywhere. They're not investing in baskets of flowers anymore. They're investing in the kind of people who yesterday saved lots of other people's lives. So we are not operating in a business-as-usual environment in any extent of the imagination. And I think for that particular reason, but also for the particularity of orphan drugs and not only, industry is not operating in a business-as-usual mindset. That doesn't exist anymore. That's gone out the window. Um, so um, the other reason it's not business-as-usual is, is because this business that we're in is not your garage um, startup HP, Microsoft, you can't do this in your garage and then scale it up with some investment. You know, go and do it. It's, it's not like that. The odds are 10,000 to one. You're going to start with 10,000 compounds and you must, might come out to one. That is not a good story for an investor when you go with your little story. By the way, the odds are 10,000 to one. Right, go away. You know? <laughs> so, so you're not in a, you're not, an, and in the rare disease area, even more so, among the five to 8,000 rare diseases we have, only 400 have treatments. 400, yeah. So imagine that. They're all complex. They're generally uh, genetic-based. Um, it takes about three years to diagnosis, if you're lucky. Um, they, they target children. They're severe, chronic, severe, debilitating. I mean, it, it, this is not your usual, um, even health environment, I think. And, and the impact, like Jan was saying, is not just on the patient who cannot perform a number of functions and therefore often, if they survive, often um, can't participate in normal economic life, but has a number of carers around him or her. So the impact is not only on the patient, it's on society. So the whole, I think the whole environment of rare diseases is not your standard operating environment. Um, and, and so the value of treatments and the value of all the other um, things that we were talking about, ERNs, data, everything else that can facilitate solutions is even higher. And I'm not talking about price. So I think we really need to separate the concept of incentives, soft or hard, that um, encourage investment in a 10,000 to one, um, 300 patient at a time <laughs> probability of getting somewhere, um, and price or value that is assessed by HTA and pricing agencies at a national level. And I really look forward to finding a way to making that turning that to our, to our advantage. But this is, these are two different discussions. And, and the good news is we got it right in Europe on non-orphan diseases. I mean, it's not often that we say, with our legislation, we got it right, and we incense, sorry for the colleagues from the commission here. Um, but, you know, it's not often that we say, we, we got from eight treatments to 135 treatments in, in, uh, in 15 years. I mean, that, that's impressive. So we got it right. Um, there was a public consultation recently, 2015 and 16, on, on the regulation. There have been some guidelines that have come out to adapt it a little bit. And I think, you know, that's, that's the way to do it. When you have a success, you're not going to go and reopen and see, do I need to fix something that's not broken? Do I 
you know, we've been smart. We've found other ways of doing it. And, but that's not to say that, the, the, that we can't do better. And I think what Xavier mentioned and Jan, and, 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 and you can see how creative and, and you know, forward-looking Kim is being, it's not to say that we stop here and go, well, we've got it right, we're just going to carry on. Because we're not in a business-as-usual environment. Because the budgets are what they are. But then, then if that is the case, it's so important that we sit together in a line, but we also sit together around the table. And we say, okay, so how do we manage the other um, 760 <laughs> you know, diseases that don't have a, a therapy? And how, uh, how do we... Uh, sorry, 7,600. How do we... Um, address that in, in, in this new um, paradox of a world that we're in right now. don't have the answer, but I would agree that collaboration is the only way. Yeah. Okay, and on this issue of collaboration, um, I'm delighted to introduce Maurizio Scarpa. You're the director of the Horst Schmidt Clinic, Clinic Institute for Rare Diseases and also the coordinator of at least one European reference network, which has been spoken about or mentioned several times. It's the new shiny jewel, crown jewel in the crown of Gigi Sante. What? Yeah. Okay. It's a, new, it's a new European level jewel. So the question is, what do you hope that the ERNs could achieve that would otherwise not be possible? Well, thank you very much. First of all, for the invitation, also because today, I have to say, is the first year that actually the concept of the European Reference Network has a base meaning that one year ago today, we presented our application and we started the process for approval. So this is a celebration that we are actually really taking and uh, this is a way, the, the conception of the European Reference Network. Then indeed we were, we were delivering or we were being born in March. So it was really, I'm a pediatrician, it was really a nine, nine months, months. <laughs> okay, pregnancy. So now we are a newborn. Uh, and I have to say, European Reference Network uh, is a concept, is a revolution, and thanks for being in Europe. Meaning that uh, it's a way to actually work all together uh, inside the 28 member states with centers of excellence in a coordinated way, in a directed way by the European Commission among centers of excellence recognized by the local Ministry of Health in multidisciplinary teams that are thinking and seeing the patient as a whole person and not just a single specialty, and they are patient-centered. Because Jan was uh, extremely uh, correct in saying that we are actually the generation of a movement from patients that is uh, started in the early 2000s. And the constants, the need, the persistence of the patient brought the, the major expert to be inside the European FS network. Uh, we are 24. This is also a, a big number. We are uh, about 300 hospitals, 1,000 specialized units. And although we are 24 different ERNs, we are all together. We are not silos. Today, we had the second meeting of coordination, or the coordinators, together with the Member States Advisory Board and the European Commission. And we are now a body, because I'm pleased to say that since a couple of hours, I'm also coordinating the coordinators. So we have a structure. We are 
making a strategy, we have a strategy, we are sharing problems, we are solving problems. This, you cannot do it alone. You cannot do it in a small network. You can do something in a small network, you can achieve some results, but the big goal, which is to change the quality of life of patients, to change the natural history of diseases, to find new therapies, need collaboration, need effort, need vision, need mission, and need passion. So at this point, the important thing is that uh, we have uh, the knowledge to be born. We have uh, a lot of collaboration even with other institutes. We are working together with the uh, International uh, Rare Disease uh, uh, Expert Group uh, to reach the goal of the 1,000 therapies in 2027, to reach the goal which is already achieved uh, of 200 uh, therapies in 2020. We are collaborating with companies, when, with, uh, 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 with foundation of patient organization. We are collaborating with the European Commission from whom we are generated. We have the patient directing us because the patients are inside the European Reference Network, part of the governance, part of the quality control, part of the ideas that, and the need that they, they, they really express to us in order for us to fulfill. And uh, the, the different uh, national health system now has to realize that there is uh, a, another tool an organized tool at the European level that can be an extreme advantage in order to design the Leopard scheme that now we have in Europe, where there are countries where therapies can be very readily uh, uh, given to patients and others where they cannot even be bought. They have a new tool in order to harmonize the treatment, the diagnosis uh, uh, of rare diseases. It's a long-term uh, concept. It is not a project lasting three years. And I think that, uh, you know, there is a, a lot of commitment from everybody in order that this newborn is actually, uh, you know, growing and being a good, uh, a good person. So I'm very enthusiastic because it is something that really comes after, for, for myself, 30 years of working on rare diseases. And 30 years ago, I was alone. And as a matter of fact, in my field, we made the first world meeting in 50 people. Now we have 1,000 expert groups, 300 hospitals, and in my European reference network, we are following 43,000 patients inside and, and having 1,700 specialists altogether. This is a success. Thank you. I think you've described for us very nicely both the evolution and progression of an initiative that, that was uh, put forward and is shaped around the patients, but you can see how Europe has this convening function to bring organizations together. And I've seen the European Reference Networks described as bringing the knowledge and the expertise to the patient rather than expecting the patient to go out and find that through the system. So it's certainly an area where we would hope to see over time, if the promise of the ERNs is delivered, a real increase in quality of life for the patients and their families. So now let me invite our, our two MEPs to come in, and I'll start with uh, Christian Silvio Boussoy. Um, based on what you've just heard, the importance for families with rare diseases of a coordinated response at EU level, some of the ideas that have already been put forward. What's the view from the European Parliament? Thank you very much. <clears throat> of course, uh, many of the solutions are not in the European Parliament, 
And I believe that uh, the legislation that you put it in place in the last years are uh, good incentives for uh, innovation in the rare diseases area. I would uh, say that uh, the biggest problem is, of course, uh, the situation in the member states and uh, the situation where we have a fragmentation of behaviors when we talk about pricing and also when we talk about reimbursement uh, policies and schemes. And, of course, uh, the most important uh, cause is related to budgets. It is difficult for uh, Central and East European countries to invest uh, to reimburse uh, quickly some uh, drugs for uh, rare diseases because the budgets uh, are very low. But it's not only about the budgets. And uh, it was uh, at the beginning uh, a statement saying that uh, there are differences between the situations in member states with similar uh, levels of economic development or uh, care, healthcare spending. It was the case of Germany and it was uh, also described the case of UK. And uh, there are two comparable countries uh, relate when we talk about budgets, about economic investment, about uh, healthcare investment, but the behavior is different. And I believe that in many EU countries uh, we have a problem with uh, bureaucracy, with red tape, with some uh, de decisions that are uh, taken uh, more difficult than in other member states. And the situation is also like this in the Central and East European, in the Southern Europe, where you see different models in countries which are close to each other as spending, as power of uh, investing in new therapies. Besides, uh, besides uh, treatment, I believe that we should also concentrate on diagnosis. Because in the area of rare diseases, uh, proper diagnosis uh, is key, is essential. And uh, I saw some data <coughs> staying, stating that, uh, unfortunately, many of the patients uh, are spending months or even more than one year before being properly diagnosed. And I believe that here also we should focus and see what we, we could improve. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you. And let me now turn to Marek Plura, also from the European Parliament, to provide some comments. Dear friends of Europe, of course, uh, firstly, I would like to thank the organizers who made my participation in today's meeting possible and Friends of Europe for bringing up the topic of support for patients with rare diseases, because I'm the patient too. I'm delighted to see so many familiar faces here. Rare diseases are a huge problem affecting a small group of people. Its scale makes it difficult for efficient research, diagnostics, and therapy to be arranged at national level. At European level, we can certainly do much more. Therefore, I'm happy to see the new European reference networks, which I consider to be a great accomplishment. I have very high hopes for this project. One of the biggest problems for persons affected by rare diseases is that correct diagnosis frequently takes place after many expensive and unnecessary 
examination and often demanding treatments. It's important to spread knowledge of rare diseases both in the medical and the public medias for it to reach the affected person and their families. This support of action can easily be taken at European level, European level with the communication tools available to us today. Difference in national funding system, systems are an important barrier to the use of therapy and diagnostic abroad. Those systems are often flawed. For example, in Poland, bandages for people affected by edermolysis bullosa have recently stopped being founded and now represent a cost of approximately 1,000 euro per month which is well beyond the means of the average Polish family. This type of example can be found in many countries. I have been, I have been thinking on how to manage those barriers which prevent patients from benefiting from diagnostics and treatment abroad or from accessing expensive medication. Perhaps a special European program or sort of European patients card for person with real diseases could be useful as the question. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for inviting me and remain at your disposal for any future support in this matter. Thank you. Thank you. So now let me open up the conversation to you in the audience. We've heard about the different areas where we've made tremendous progress in rare diseases, but we still have heard very clear messages from different stakeholders about the delays, the gaps. Hopefully some of that may be um, achieved through the ERNs where the knowledge and the clinical guidelines will be updated and we'll be able to shorten that pathway. Hopefully there'll be some new treatments uh, coming faster. So looking forward, where else do we go? What else can be done given some of the challenges? It's not business as usual. We've got tight budgets. Different governments make different decision-making uh, issues. We have some countries like Bulgaria and Romania that are spending 6% and others that spend 10% of their national budget on health. So clearly, there's different capacities of health systems to respond. Is there anyone from the floor who would like to intervene? I have a couple of hands up over here and over here. Right, so I'll start with the lady in green and we'll come over here. Thank you very much. Very informed and uh, interesting discussion. Uh, Laura Batchelor from FIPRA, and I do um, uh, a number of projects and, and privileged to work with, with Jan and Epia and uh, a number of clinicians in the rare disease of space. I have a question regarding, uh, coming on to what Natalie said, changing times and really requires new approaches. 
Um, and with that comes the discussion around incentives. And I think there's a lot of discussion around commercial incentives. And at the moment, you know, we have a, a nice framework with robust incentives commercially. But for change, we also need behavioral change. So we need incentives to actually get change management, as it were. And so my question to the panel is, in respect of um, the decision makers and players in this uh, orbit, so the clinicians, the payers, where you see perhaps vested interests and perhaps uh, maybe a more conservative uh, role, it's much easier to cut a managed entry agreement and just agree a deal than to go through something where you have to actually uh, analyze the evidence and the data which has been collated. You know, this, this takes time. So you have to really incentivize those people in the sort of delivery change to change. So my question is, do you see examples of best practice across Europe where we see this happening? Because that's what Europe is best at, actually. It's in sort of taking up uh, examples of best practice and, and sharing that. Okay, thank you. And there was someone over here. Let's take your question. Mike is coming to you. Thanks a lot. I have a question to uh, Director General Pratsmone. We are in the process, so the Commission is in the process to. Do you want to have just introduce yourself? I'm Martin Hoemer from DG, uh, from DG Research and Innovation, but in a completely different field. So thank not you. related to health. But the Commission is already in the process to. to have first brainstorming meetings about the structure and the content of FP9, of the Framework Program 9, the successor of Horizon 2020. And one of the ideas currently floating around are the so-called societal missions. So my simple question is, wouldn't uh, rare diseases be uh, a quite suitable object for such a societal mission? Okay, thank you. So we've got a very clear question uh, from Mr. Pratsmonet, if you'd like to take that, and then I'll invite the panel to reflect on who's got some examples of good practice and changing behaviour by payers. Uh, thanks a lot. This is the ideal question for your boss, Mr. Moedas, uh, but uh, let me not try to evade this. Um, yeah, the, the Commission is indeed starting the debate on the, not on the FP9, but on the future of the EU budget. And it is a damn difficult debate because we know very well how difficult it will be for all sorts of reasons. One of them, of course, is the consequence of Brexit, and we should not mm -hmm. hide from that. Uh, but also the fact that there will be an ever more necessary and difficult need to demonstrate specific EU added value before you fund something or before you enter, pre we start with any EU initiative. Um, and EU added value will be defined in the way that the Juncker Commission defines it right now, very simply, as something that has to be done at European level because it cannot be done better at any other level. If you look at it this way, I think this is good news for everybody, and it's been particular for the ERNs for two reasons. First, whatever the new budget, big or small, what we need at European level for rare diseases is still going to be just a drop. Uh, we don't need, we can, we can have far more resources to support at the European level DRNs without shattering any of the big balances of the EU budget. But the other thing is that I think if there's one area, as I tried to say at the beginning, I believe in this profoundly, if there's one area where it must be easy to show EU other value and therefore the need for EU investment, this is where this is in the DRN. Now, what does this mean for the program? Well, I, your question is more on the structure and how the program will be structured. This we really don't know. But what I understand from the Commission's thinking, including Commissioner Moedas, is that we should be thinking not in terms of different 
cows to milk with different requirements. I mean, the flexibility of the different instruments and within and between instruments is, I think, one of the major obstacles today. We don't know very well where the future priorities will be. What we need is an instrument that is flexible enough. So I think this pleads for a far less structured, vertically organized EU budget, including the research budget, whereas it should be organized in terms of objectives or missions. So let's say the short answer to your question is yes, but not in terms of the type of instrument, but in terms of the type of things that the future EU investment incentives should be funded. Let me say that there might be a more interesting way of looking at ERN as an example of future funding, which is the sort of things that uh, Jan was telling about the need for a more consistent partnership between public and private spending. Uh, it's, it's often said, but it's difficult to put in practice, that thinking about EU budget just in terms of grants is wrong. It's wrong because we can't afford to have just grants, and it's wrong because there, there are other intelligent ways to get money. And rare disease and what the value of the data produced from rare diseases is so obvious that not using this for the public good would be a mistake. The question is that we don't have the tradition to use this. We have a lot of stereotypes and prejudice against this, and we should get it right. If you look at the ERN discussion, you have member states who have had the willingness to create the ERNs, and then the ERNs themselves. And you see there a natural tension between the member states who want to continue at the steering wheel because they see themselves as public authorities, rightly so, and the ERNs who want to exploit as much as they can the potential of what they are producing in terms of data, and at the same time make sure that their instrument is not just a nice way to cooperate between scientists, but a transformative instrument for the way healthcare is produced. So these are the things we should be looking at. I have no doubt that there will be incentives in the new framework program. The question is, will there be the right incentives? And that's still not there. Let me ask Jan, perhaps you, you can answer the question about um, across Europe, and obviously you, as a, a patient organisation, you'll have insight into some of the decisions yeah. that were highlighted by Marek, some of which seem highly illogical. Do you have examples of good practice where the payers have updated their thinking and changed their behaviour in a positive way? <coughs> yes. But I would say yes and no. Uh, the, the short answer is to say yes and to say, yes, Germany gives immediately access to approved orphan drugs uh, and negotiate one year later. So that's a way to give first access and after mm -hmm. uh, look at a little bit of more evidence after one year and discuss. France has the ATU, nominative ATU or court ATU. That's a good way also to provide immediate access to collect some da additional data. You have Italy, which has been very uh, advanced as an agency, AIFA, because they do, at the same time, regulatory HD and pay and negotiation, and they have been active in registries. Now, is that really successful? It, you can debate, because the real issue is real-world evidence or payment based on patient outcome means that you are able to come back with this data to have an, a well-informed discussion, and that's not that easy. Uh, more recently, we've seen Ireland trying to solve the issue of access to a new treatment on cystic fibrosis with a very innovative deal. So th there is interesting approaches. There is also the new collaboration which has potential between Benelux and, Austri and Austria, but for the moment is more of a disappointment, let's say, until they show uh, the real positive impact. But let me extend your question a little bit. Is that for us, what is not an acceptable answer 
is no. Because that's the most stupid one. What does it mean to invest into treatments and get them to market authorization with a sophisticated work by industry and by regulators if at the end it doesn't get to the patient? So that's what we need to fix. And today the only power that some member states use, because that's the only one they have, is to say no. In Spain today they have been, told, they have been saying no to the 10 last approved medicines in the field of rare diseases, simply to put pressure on the system. Netherlands is, is playing that game at the moment too. So that's only a way to put pressure. And that's the most visible part. The most invisible is what uh, Mr. Bussoy was saying in, the central, in central Europe, where the access is poor. But some countries like Czech Republic are doing huge effort to provide access. So you see these differences. So where the solutions are is that we need to go deep into the interest. Industry needs return on investment and good reward in order to attract investment, and they need predictability. The healthcare system needs sustainability and affordability. For that, there is no way we're going to get it with that fragmentation. No way in the field of rare disease. Because everything we're talking since an hour is about the generation of evidence on medicines after market authorization. You can say registry, but that's not the only solution. It's about data collection after market authorization. Because what you get at the time of market authorization in any of our diseases, even things like cystic fibrosis or uh, hemophilia, is an artifact. The artifact of a supposed to be homogeneous population, which is needed for the purpose of the regulatory process. But that doesn't exist. The reality of the clinicians is that they have a very heterogeneous population. So we need to see... What's the extent of the answer? Who is responsive? Which dose? At which age? Etc. That you get it only real world. So rather go fast on the market at the end of phase two and then go for the real world evidence in the European Funds Network, defer DHTA, quality effectiveness assessment for later on. Now, how do we discuss the price? All the options are on the table. We can have good facing price, but big discount on uncertainties across, or specifically on patient outcome and other ways. We can be creative, but to do that, it cannot be as today, or not for the long term, to be so different from one country to another. We need to be around the same table to do that. And think about the gene therapy that are coming up, like the one approved for Adaskid in Italy, 10 babies per year in Europe. What? GSK is supposed to go in the 28 member states. They don't want to do that, obviously. They just go for the six big. And even Belgium and Netherlands, I asked them, they say, why would I meet GSK for one baby to be born maybe in my country one day? So that doesn't work. We need to accept that. And that's not only for rare diseases, it's for precision medicines too. Okay. We are um, running tight on our time. So can I see who else you wanted to say something? Does anyone else want to add to the conversation? If not, I'll ask our panel to wrap up. We'll get the microphone to you. My name is Cosillo. I have the pleasure to represent the European Medical Association. I would like to stress one point. We need to make more education. Education for the physician and especially the training courses. Because it's too late when we make the right diagnosis of the rare disease. We need to prevent. We need to extend the genetic test to do something before. Probably before the birth. This is important. And I would like to really invite all of you to think about this. This is the moment to spend money for the right way, for the right person at the right moment. Thank you. Okay. Panel, is there any last point that you would like to add on this? We've heard that 
We have to find creative solutions and there are ways of doing it. We have to bring people around the table, all stakeholders, and recognizing that in the rare disease areas that sometimes the logic of negotiation between the, the traditional model of payers and industry to negotiate is just unworkable and unfeasible. So do you have any final comments, particularly around creative solutions that we could find? Maurizio? Well, I mean, I think that uh, the possibility and the reality of the European Reverence Network uh, is not only a challenge, which is a nice challenge to have, I have to say, but it is an opportunity also for medicine in general. I totally agree with uh, uh, the colleague that uh, uh, was speaking now that we need uh, to have uh, a coordination in order not only to cure but also to prevent diseases. And, and this is absolutely a, a, a must. And the European Reference Network are indeed basing on this, the concept of prevention rather than therapy, but also to find therapy, uh, their own action. Uh, another important issue is that uh, we can expand this this concept even to more frequent diseases. So we have a big responsibility of European Reference Network because we are, in, in my opinion, inventing a new system of health. And this, if successful, can be extremely useful also. Uh, Jan was speaking about uh, cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis is inside the rare diseases, but it's the most common genetic disease, so it's not so rare. But that is a very nice point of of, of meeting between uh, rare diseases and common diseases. And rare diseases, a lot of time, can explain pathogenesis of common diseases. So we have a big responsibility. And we have to take all the chances in order that the European Reference Network are facilitated in their work in order to get all the results that uh, we are seeing possible. And, uh, I would not stick very much on the problem of funding, for example, because, I mean, what I'm always saying, ah, yes, there will be an effort, but you don't have money, you cannot do anything. This is not an issue. I mean, the terms failure is not in our dictionary, and this is a no-way-back point. The money will be there. The European Commission is thinking about our hospitals are in the network. So at this point, it's the critical mass which is important, and the generation of the critical mass in rare diseases and also in other, in other countries, together with the family association, with the, 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 the private industries, with the, the European Commission. It's a, a, a community. Mm -hmm. Does anyone else want to make a final statement? Just uh, to, to say from our perspective, uh, we think that the incentives there to actually stimulate innovation, I think they're working. I think it would be a shame to spend energy unpicking and reinventing something that's, that's not broken. Um, what is broken is how to actually get these medicines uh, to our patients. And I would just really ask, I think this is a wonderful opportunity, the rare disease space, to actually get all of the, the stakeholders around the table and, and, and kind of eat this elephant, if you like, you know, one rare disease at a time. So, okay. Let me say this. Uh, uh, I, I'm, what really strikes me in the field of health is the same thing that I've seen in the field of education, which is that there's a very strong sense on the part of the health community of what Europe can do for people, but this is not shared outside the world of health. And if we want a stronger role 
for uh, health in the future, we must avoid having a debate on this issue limited to subsidiarity, who knows what. Uh, I think it is extremely important that people who can testify, it's not me, I am the bureaucrat there, but people who can testify as to how Europe's action is indispensable in some areas, they have to do it outside the world of us who are preaching to the converts. Otherwise, our voice will not be heard. And I, I, I just think, I, I'm, I'm very struck by this because every time that in a meeting like this, you see how much is a consensus that you know, we may improve many things, but the answer to what we do has to be more cooperation, not less. This is not a voice that you hear enough. And let's not make the mistake, if I may say so, that was done in the Brexit debate, where all those who knew about the merits of European cooperation were just too silent, or rather were not shouting high enough. So those of us who are convinced about the merits of cooperation in the field of health this is the time to make it known because this is when the future of Europe is being shaped and we don't know what it will be, but it's going to be different from the shape of, Euro of European institutions and, and instruments that we have now. Lastly, something not to forget, I, 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 was, I was asked to make a comment about, for a forum somewhere, about wh what I think the debate will be in that forum in 15 years' time. And I thought about it a little bit, and then I reached a simple conclusion. The debate about, uh, in that forum will be about something that today we consider as science fiction. This is how quickly health is moving because of technology. We, you all know this. But we must make sure that Europe helps this and is not known enough. Is not known enough. So this is my plea. Okay. It's perhaps appropriate, Jan, that we finish with the patients, given that it is all about patients and their families, and they've been so involved in shaping this European landscape and perspective that has so much potential. What takeaway message would you like for the audience? First, I'd like to support, without repeating because it's useless, what Xavier just said. Fully agree. But how difficult is that? We're exactly in the middle of that, for instance, to contribute to the five scenarios of Mr. Juncker, right? Even just to get the 40 NGOs together, looking at the future but not being defensive is already difficult for us to do. Thank you. And second, to get to the public, beyond Rare Disease Day and awareness campaigns and that is quite difficult. Access to media is difficult for us. People don't care that much about us and they don't care much when we come with the flag to show that this is high European added value. We, we find it sexy. We're happy about it. The, the journalists don't, really don't. That's, that's an issue. But I agree with you still. The, so the take-home message for me is that we have, I'd like to follow up on what Mauricio just said. We are in an area where the drama is scarcity of patients, expertise, knowledge, money, and what is success is critical mass. So quantity means quality. This is all the movement has born from the patients and the clinicians. This is what we have today with the European Funds Network. In itself, 1,000 specialized units, that's a huge change. A structured 24 therapeutic area, that's a huge change in itself. So now we need to think quantity producing quality, again, in terms of data, also on how we connect the research agenda and research infrastructures and training of the workforce and of the patient advocate with the European Funds Networks. How do we build clinical research networks within the care networks in order to produce more evidence? Because today the networks are going to be good at implementing the existing knowledge. 
virtual care, second opinion, etc. What is going to be more challenging is to generate new knowledge, and that's the second big mission of these healthcare networks, but that's a strong link with the research and in a participative way, again, with patients and industry, but I would say also with the healthcare community locally, and that goes back to your point, absolutely training of doctors and healthcare professionals. So my last thing maybe to say here is that if we think 10, five years from now, we have a huge opportunity, and maybe that should be a new way of communicating about our agenda, is that we can have, in terms of prevention, more knowledge about the cause of rare disease because we know very little. Mm -hmm. Preventing rare disease, so reducing the number of people, newborn with rare disease, can be an objective. Diagnosis for all people with rare disease within six months, according to the International Consortium, that's something which is achievable in Europe within six months, thanks to the new technologies. And we could have the goal of gaining 10 years of life in the next 10 or 15 years on the average. That's doable. That has happened in hemophilia, in cystic fibrosis, in Duchenne, in epidemiologist pulosa, in plenty of diseases. So that's a nice goal to have. And that helps us to focus things. European funds network are not pipes or bureaucratic pipes. They are people who are giving their time and passion today. That's what they are doing. Thank you for doing that. And they are focused on pro producing patients' health outcome. That's what we need to get. That's where we need to get the system moving in. And the same in terms of access. What does it mean to, in terms of EU competitiveness if 25% or 50% of the patients don't get access? That's not a market. It's broken, as Kim said. So we need to fix that. That, for me, could be the orientation. Thank you. So our panel has set out a whole series of different ideas and ways to move forward. And I would like on your behalf to say a very warm thank you for contributing uh, to a lively conversation on a hot summer's day. And, and let's, let's end on the point that you know, Europe is at a crossroads. The future is not yet written. It's being shaped by us and on our behalf. There are five scenarios on the table by Mr. Juncker that will need to be built up, and at least one of those scenarios has no health in it at all. So as a minimum, this is a call to action for people in this room to engage with that process. Because if we want the things to happen that we've been talking about, the potential of all of this work to actually be delivered, the critical mass to go from quantity to quality, it will require all of us to make that message. So I hope to be working with you through Friends of Europe in the coming 18 months or so to make that a reality. Thank you for your time.